Hello, everybody, and welcome to Teach Me Something, the podcast where I investigate something I'm curious about, and then I fill you in on the not boring parts of what I found out. And you I'm... just skip all the boring parts? Yes. Okay. Correct. I'm Melissa. And I'm Everett. If you want me to tell you all the boring parts, we could turn this into a two-hour, half-boring podcast, but I don't, I don't think that sounds as good as a one-hour hopefully not boring podcast. Yeah, I mean, that's a good pitch right there. That's my feelings on the matter. Okay. Um, today, if you don't recognize this from the title, we are going to be diving into a subject I am very passionate about. Right. Um, not only are we talking about zoology, which is my jam, uh, we're also specifically getting into parasitism. And that was one of my favorite courses during university. Um, I acknowledge that it can be disgusting and terrifying in some ways to learn about all the little creatures and the ways that they are conspiring to invade and destroy you from within. Um, They just really want to be with you. uh, And by want, you mean need, which is the crux of the issue. Yeah, They need you. To survive and reproduce. Anyways, I find it, without a doubt, very fascinating, um, even if it's creepy. Um, And to clarify, when I say conspiring to destroy you, that is a hyperbole right off the bat. No matter what I say, I know that these are not conscious decisions that these animals, organisms are making. Um, And also they're not really trying to destroy you because that wouldn't help them get passed along very well and transmitted. They're, they're trying to get you to do whatever they need to get you to do to pass them on. Um, Yeah. So no matter the language I use, just know that I understand that. And sometimes when we talk about evolution or when we talk about little, you know, brainless animals, the language just tends towards that. Sure. Makes sense. Yeah. Um, And, and the cool thing about, little microscopic pathogens like bacteria and viruses and in this case parasites is that they reproduce so quickly and so prolifically that they have so many possible mutations and generations to develop very cool changes and adaptations that we have not had the time to deal with bodily speaking um yeah so i'm excited to talk about this uh and i and i hope hope it's not too gross. Yeah, sure will be fine. So how about you teach me something? All right. Um, so to start with, as I said, parasites defined by it basically needs you. It needs you. It does harm to you. It's not a beneficial relationship for you, but it is for them. Right. Um, and parasites, unlike viruses and bacteria, have two different types of hosts both of which are necessary for them to do their life cycle. Um, Okay. And it's oversimplifying things to say that viruses and bacteria don't have different types of hosts um, because they do. Like, for instance, you know, some hosts are infected by those things and show symptoms. And some hosts, the germs just live there and don't cause symptoms, but they kind of keep the germ around. Like they're a reservoir, we say, of of that germ. Just like, you know, 
SARS-CoV-2 doesn't actually make white-tailed deer sick with COVID, but it certainly lives in them and then can jump to us right. whenever it gets the chance. Um, but these different types of hosts are not both necessary for the survival right. and reproduction of the bacteria. They could just stay in one type, quote-unquote, forever yeah. without any sort of issue. Correct. But that's not what happens with parasites. So in a parasite, in order to survive, it would have to change hosts at some time. Parasites have different types of hosts for different parts of their life cycle. Okay. So one type is called the definitive host. This is where the adult parasite lives and where sexual reproduction occurs. Okay. The other type of host is called the intermediate host. And that's where any larval or asexual forms of the parasite live. And when you say different type of host, you mean like a different uh, animal. Is that always accurate? Or, or could it just be like two different people or two different animals of the same species? Different species. Different okay. types of animal. Okay. For reasons we're not always certain of. Sure. Um, which is one of the very cool things about toxoplasmosis is we recently just figured out why their definitive host is their definitive host. And I think it's the first time we've ever figured that out. Are there cases where a parasite could have various definitive hosts and mm. various, did you call them intermediate hosts? Do you want to read my next bullet point? No, I suspect I already know what it might be. <laughs> oh, <laughs> You can just read it out. It says, some parasites are more specific than others. Some need one particular species or genus of animal for their host, and they have no flexibility. Okay. Um, like how the parasite that causes malaria can only reproduce sexually within the mosquitoes in the Anopheles genus. Okay. Some parasites are more generalist. They're more broad. They could use any canid, any dog, any mammal, any whatever. Sure. Um, so this is all very parasite specific. Okay. Um, and, and toxoplasmosis, uh, well, toxoplasma is the organism, but it, it's one of the, the more general parasites for their intermediate host. Okay. And pretty specific for, well, family specific for their definitive host, as we will, as we will see. Very cool. Um, so we are today talking about a parasite called Toxoplasma gondii. Great. Okay. It's responsible for the illness we've called Toxoplasmosis. This tracks. Toxo for short. Yeah. Okay. So Toxoplasma gondii is what we call, okay, ready for this? Um, it's an obligate intracellular parasitic apicomplexin protozoan. Some of those words I know. Yeah, right? They're not all ridiculous. Um, I'm going to explain all of it. Great. I promise. Okay. So, obligate, meaning it has to be parasitic. There's no free-living forms or option to be free-living. That was the direction I would assume that that word would take us. So good. Great. With you so far. Intracellular means it enters into the cells of its hosts instead of living in the intercellular spaces. So it was intra, you said like I-N-T-R-A. Yes, yes. Okay, like an intranet versus an internet. Yes. Makes sense. It Got you. into the cells, doesn't live between them in the intercellular spaces. Perfect. Got Great. it. Okay, we're getting there. 
Protozoans. Mm-hmm. Protozoans are a group of single-celled eukaryotes. I was going to say, all I know about them is single cell. So Eukaryote. What does the eukaryote part mean again? True cell, as opposed True. to prokaryotes. False cell. Uh, yeah, more primitive. Okay. Um, they have mem. I'm trying to remember all this from high school biology. Eukaryotes have membrane-browned organelles and a nucleus and all these things that prokaryotes, okay. like a bacteria, don't have these complicated... They actually have little organelles, like mini organs. They have, it's a, it's a true cell. It closely mimics the type of cells that we have in our body. That makes sense. And pro probably coming from like proto, meaning like early or. Yes. Okay. Exactly. Akin to like prototype, the same sort of root, root, I would assume. Okay. Got it. Um, so protozoans feed on organic matter, like microorganisms or tissues or debris, whatever. Um, so some of them, like I said, some groups are free living, some groups are parasitic. Protozoans, they used to just call like any little one-celled animal, be like one-celled animals, protozoans, done. And then we decided taxonomy doesn't work that way. And they probably have genes and relationships just like other animals did. Right. Um, so protozoans aren't really a real group anymore, but we still say they are. It's, it's kind of confusing. It, It depends how scientific and technical you want to get. Like the the common terminology has still stuck around, right? Whereas it's not necessarily accurate anymore. Correct. Okay. Um. So other examples of a, of protozoans are that parasite that causes malaria, Plasmodium, um, amoebas, Trypanosoma, which causes Chagas disease. Um. So Apicomplexin. It's a type of protozoan. Um, it's a pretty large phylum of alveolates. Hmm. Okay, they're all parasitic. Okay. These are the this is the group of parasitic alveolates. So alveolate just means they have sacs near their surface of their cell. These like sure. large sacs, okay? Um, most of apicomplexins have a unique organelle. So an organelle is just like a mini organ mm-hmm. called an apicoplast. Great word. Yeah, it is. That's why they're called apicomplexins. Again, all of that tracks so far. The only reason I'm including all this technical science stuff is because this part is really cool, okay? So an apicoplast is a type of plastid. All right. Plastids are organelles that originated through intracellular endosymbiotic cyanobacteria. Okay. Okay. So... There was an ancient cyanobacterium. Cyano being? Blue-green. It photosynthesizes. Yeah. It creates its own food. It's a bacteria that photosynthesizes. And I assume that one of the major components of it is cyanide. Uh, Like cellular, like at the molecular level. mm, Or they use it in the process. Or maybe. I I don't remember. Okay. I can't, I can't say that for sure. But the only important part you have to know is it's a cyanobacterium. It photosynthesizes. It's a single cell. Okay. Okay. It was engulfed by a eukaryotic cell a long time ago. We are talking when everything was single cell, basically. Okay. It wasn't digested. It lived inside there by forming a symbiotic relationship with its host eukaryotic cell. Okay. Uh... The eukaryote and the bacterium both benefited from sharing their existence. Bacteria got fed. Mm-hmm. It went under, went photosynthesis and it fed the 
larger cell that engulfed it. Okay. Right. So it basically, um, <laughs> it, it, it makes this little photosynthetic organ inside this bigger cell. Okay. Very cool. And then, and then this was later engulfed by another eukaryote. Anyways, it's, it's like we made a tiny little organ by a littler cell that was free living being engulfed by a bigger cell. And then they kind of evolved that way. Cool. And, um, what happened was an apicoplast evolved from this type of organelle. And it lost all the genes in its genome. It didn't need. Its genome went from 150 KB to down to 35. Okay. And now it lost its ability to photosynthesize because that's not what it does. An apicoplast is only there to help that little apicomplexin parasite to get inside of a host cell. Cool. That's what it's for. Um, so the apicoplasts are so vital to how apicomplexins work and how they, you know, survive and reproduce that that is what we target now with new drugs to treat things like malaria because plasmodium is an apicomplexin too. Cool. So we are trying to kill the apicoplast because that will essentially kill the parasite. Right. And because... They are apicoplasts are plastids that evolved from those photosynthetic plastids. We can use herbicidal drugs as the basis of hmm. our, our treatments. Very cool. So you see why I had to include all that boring science because that, that was cool, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's cool. Good. So. Getting back to what we're actually talking about specifically, which is Toxoplasma gondii, um, it's found all over the world. It's capable of infecting virtually every warm-blooded animal, some birds, some reptiles, intermediate hosts, are, cool. is a very, very much a generalist. Um, but the only definitive host are, um, is family Felidae. So just cats, different types of cats. And not even every single type, but most cats. Okay. Um, so again, definitive hosts are the ones where it can... Reproduce. Sexually reproduce, not asexually. Okay, okay. Only sexual reproduction in cats. Got it, got it. I hadn't thought about the fact that they might be asexually reproducing as well. Yes, they can do that. They're only one cell. Makes sense. Yeah. So um, let's do a little history of toxoplasma. We did not know about it until 1908. Um, Charles Nichol and Louis Manso discovered a protozoan organism in the tissues of a North African rodent known as a Gandhi, which is where it gets the name Gandhi. Um, that makes sense. It's also called a comb rat. It, like, like, just carries a little comb around or... <laughs> I think it has something to do with its mouth parts, but... Sure. Oh, yeah. okay. Sure. Yeah. Um, so anyways, they they were working in Tunis at the Pasteur Institute at the time. Um, in Tunis. In, yes, in just, Tunisia. Just against the Mediterranean Sea, a little bit south of Italy. 
Thank you. Yeah, no problem. For that geography. Yeah, just I knew about Love it, so it. I had to, you know, sound smart for a moment. That's good. I'm, I'm cool with it. Okay, so they initially think that this is part of the uh, genus Leishmania, um, and they named it wrong, and then they realized quickly that that, no, this is a new thing entirely. So they changed the name to Toxoplasma gondii. Um, the genus name Toxoplasma is from the Greek toxo, which means arc or bow, which I wouldn't have guessed. Um, and plasma meaning shape or form. Okay. So it's a little arc-shaped cell. Bow-shaped oh. cell. Yeah. Um, so, like I said, the disease that you get from toxoplasma is toxoplasmosis. Um, coincidentally, that same year, 1908, uh, a man named Alfonso Splendore identified this organism in a rabbit in Brazil. But he in did not year. name it. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah, right? Um, so to date, there's no other species, known species in this genus. Toxoplasma gondii is the only toxoplasma we know about. Okay. Um, in 1914, Italian tropicalist, which like, what is that job? But anyways, Aldo Castellani was the first to suspect toxoplasmosis uh, could affect humans. So, um, then we tried to find it basically and find out what it might've been doing in humans and didn't really figure it out um, until 1938 was the first kind of conclusive ID of Toxoplasma gondii in humans. Um, basically a baby was delivered um, at baby's hospital in New York city. She had seizures and eye lesions. She died at about one month old. So they did an autopsy and discovered lesions in her brain, lesions in her eyes that had Toxoplasma gondii in them. Um, and so they have to confirm you know, that this is the actual agent that caused it. So this is the same thing as we still do. We take it and we put it in something else. <laughs> um, and they put it into the brain of rabbits and mice. And yes, those animals develop the same symptoms. So we are like, yeah, this is the causative agent. Um, uh-oh. <laughs> so they confirmed that transmission could occur congenitally. Congenitally. I have a hard time with that word. Uh, in humans and other species. Yep. So um, sheep and rodents particularly. Uh, congenitally, by the way, means, you know, the fetus is affected in the womb or at birth. Right. Um, but that's not the only way it can be transmitted. In 1954, one um, D. Weinman and A.H. Chandler suggested it could be transmitted by eating uncooked or undercooked meat. Hmm. And, uh, yeah, in 1960, scientists discovered the cysts containing the parasite actually dissolve in di digestive enzymes in the stomach, which release the infectious, what are called bradyzoites, into the stomach. So um, you can get it from You from sure meat. can. Okay. Um, but they wanted to be really sure, so they did some really messed up testing. Mm. I think it was pretty messed up. Apparently in 1965, these things were still not frowned upon. They, um, yeah, it doesn't feel like a long time ago. It does not, no. But it was long enough ago that we thought that making orphans sick on purpose was an appropriate way to do science. Hmm. So they went to this orphanage in Paris, and they added rare beef and horse meat to their meals for a year. And, yep, the incidence of Toxoplasma gondii rose from 10% to 50%. And then another group of orphans, they fed a different diet, which included rare lamb chops. And 100% of those orphans 
had Toxoplasma gondii present after the year. So yeah, definitely can get it from eating raw or undercooked meat. Wonderful. Uh-huh. Um, but a 1959 study in Mumbai found that the prevalence of Toxoplasma gondii in vegetarians was actually similar to that of non-vegetarians. Oh. Which led everyone to think that maybe there was yet a third way that you could get this. Sure. Okay. Besides the congenital and carnivore routes. Right. Makes sense. Um, so, in 1970, they found oocytes. O-O. There's two O's. Oocytes. Okay. <laughs> just just double O? O-O. Yes. Sites. C-Y-T-E. Yes. Eggs. Oh. Eggs. Not S-I-T-E. No. <laughs> C-Y-T-E. As in God, Yes. Understood. Um, and they, they found the oocytes. Um, in, uh, or ooh, cysts. Sorry. They're insisted eggs. Anyways, in cat feces. They found okay. them in, for the first time. And that's when researchers started investigating the good old fecal oral route of contamination. Oh. The poop in the mouth theory. Which, um, yeah, they found that at least 17 species of felids shed ooh, cysts in their poop. And no non-felids did so. Okay. Um, random fact, there is a vaccine for sheep, but no one else. Nothing else. Just sheep. Just sheep. It was painful economically for all those sheep farmers. It took sheep out pretty hard, so. Okay. Sheep vaccine. Okay. Um, so just to clarify and expand a bit on how you can be infected with Toxoplasma gondii, um, you... Or other intermediate hosts, I suppose, um, can be infected in a lot of ways. No one is safe. You could eat vegetables or fruits, or you could drink water that's contaminated with the oocysts. I was going to say, in that case, cat feces. Um, yeah, but like cat feces is everywhere, and it's just little microscopic things. Sure. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, you like you could be gardening. Gardening's bad for this. <laughs> oh, sure. Cats poop on the ground outside. They do. Um, Those cats. Yeah, keep your cats inside. Anyways, you could eat uncooked or undercooked meat that has tissue cysts. You could get it congenitally, like we talked about through the placenta. You could get it through a blood transfusion. You could get it through an organ transplant of organs that have cysts in there. Those are kind of like um, the carnivore route, in a way. Uh, uh, no? I don't think you consume, i.e., you know, break down the organs that you no, intake. But- Blood may be more. Yeah. More like you're just, you know, obtaining materials from or uh It's a broad definition. <laughs> from someone um, I do want to leave a little note on transmission in pregnant women, because you have probably heard not to change cat litter if you're pregnant. I have heard that because I changed all the cat litter when my mom was pregnant with my brother. Oh. For this exact reason. Yes. So I'm about to tell you that that may not have been necessary, but well, I mean, they may have just wanted me to do it and needed a good excuse. <laughs> <laughs> no, doctors don't say, but um, here's the thing. So, yes, kittens and cats can shed millions of parasites in their feces for up to three weeks after they're infected. Okay. Um, mature cats are a lot less likely to shed toxoplasma if they've been previously infected. Um, cats and kittens, you know, use litter boxes, sandboxes, whatever, garden soils, um, so you're more or even just as likely to be exposed by, let's say, gardening without gloves 
then by changing cat litter, definitely should garden with gloves, everybody, or just, you know, don't touch your face, really wash your hands. Um, if you are newly infected with toxoplasma while you are pregnant or just before you get pregnant, yes, you can pass the infection on to your baby, even though you might not have any symptoms yourself. Okay. Most infected infants don't have symptoms at birth, but some can develop really serious symptoms later, like blindness or mental disability. Um, occasionally, like that one case we talked about, you, they could have serious eye or brain damage at birth. Um, they could be miscarried before they're even born. Um, generally, though, if you were infected with toxoplasma before becoming pregnant, your unborn child will be fine, protected by your immunity. So if you've had cats your whole life, you're probably You're probably fine. okay. Got it. Um, if your cat's an indoor cat, you're probably fine. If you wear a mask and gloves and practice good hand washing, you're probably fine. But this is one of those scenarios where we don't experiment on pregnant women. So right. we can't know anything very surely. And we really, really should be better safe than sorry. Yeah. So yes, it is good practice and doctors still say don't change the cat litter when you are pregnant. Right. It's good that you did it for your mom and people should do things like that for their pregnant women in their lives. But don't freak out pregnant women, especially if you just had to do it one time. Wear a mask, wear gloves and wash your hands. Sure. Says the CDC. Um, here's a question. Why does sexual reproduction of Toxoplasma gondii occur only in cats? That is a good question. Right? Well, that's what the researchers think. But, like, again, we don't know almost. I think there is no. Actually, I think I wrote it in here. This is the first time we've ever figured this out for a parasite. Why the definitive host is the definitive host. Like, physiologically, why? So, this happens, reproduction, sexual reproduction, in the intestine of a cat. Okay? Okay. Researchers were trying to figure out what is so special about a cat intestine. Yeah, really. Right? So, that's a good place to start. What is in a cat intestine that's not in another intestine? Yeah. Is a good place to start, okay? Um, and they had some ideas and they narrowed it down and, okay, sure enough, they figured it out. They cultured feline intestinal cells in the lab and they realized that the Toxoplasma gondii sexual development only happens when they supplemented those cells with linoleic acid. Lino okay. Linoleic acid. All right. Okay. I'm going to assume now that linoleic acid is not present or common elsewhere it's not quite it okay okay it's a fatty acid and it is something that is an essential fatty acid for humans okay there's only two of those there's only two essential fatty acids in humans the other is alpha linoleic acid okay so essential do you know what that means like an essential vitamin or an essential mineral or an essential fatty acid I'm not really sure I do. No. Okay. That means we need to consume it in our diet because we need it to live, but can't make it ourselves. Okay. Okay. So it's in lots of seed oils, other types of oils like artichoke oil. Uh, it's in some nuts, chicken fat, eggs, yolks, a few other things, but mostly seed oils. It's in a lot of seed oils. Corn oil is a, a big one. Um, felines. Okay. Here we go. Felines are the only mammals that lack an enzyme called delta-6 desaturase in their intestines. 
Okay. So this enzyme break is one of the enzymes you need to break down linoleic acid. Cats are the only ones that right. don't have the enzyme in their intestines. So in their intestines, it doesn't get broken down. Got it. So it's abundant in their intestines. Yeah. But no other species, well, uh, like genus, no other animals' intestines. Okay? Yep. So researchers, to confirm this, did an experiment with mice where they inhibited the delta-6 desaturase enzyme. Right. And then supplemented the mouse um, in their diet with linoleic acid. And sure enough, Toxoplasma gondii sexually reproduced in mice. Wow. So this is the first time scientists have been able to really pinpoint the mechanism of species specificity. Cool. I like that term. Um, for the parasite sexual cycle. And it's cool. Yeah. It is very cool. Yeah. The best, well, the best part of this podcast is going to now be about uh, the cool things that Toxoplasma gondii does to manipulate host behavior. Mm. Um, that's what we're going to talk about now for most of the rest of this podcast. Very cool. Because it's cool. And um, again, I want to clarify that they're not doing these things on purpose. I get that. <laughs> but it's it's super cool. Um, and I want to start talking about rats. Rodents in general, but rats mostly. Okay. Um, so wild rats are a significant reservoir for Toxoplasma gondii. About 35% of rats across all populations, all places, all environments have it. When you when you were saying earlier, for them to be defined as a reservoir, does that mean that they don't get any symptoms or just that uh, the parasite will uh, hang out in large numbers in that host? Yeah. But they could still have symptoms. Yeah. Being a reservoir doesn't mean that they're asymptomatic. It doesn't have to mean that. Okay. It doesn't kill a lot of them. Otherwise, they wouldn't be a good reservoir. Right. But asymptomatic? No. Not zero symptoms. Okay. Especially, as we'll see, there are behavioral symptoms. But uh, a major component would be that they don't have lethal symptoms. Not necessarily. I'm just, I'm just trying to read your face here. It's, uh, it's tough. It's tough to answer this question because... Uh, as you'll see, the behavioral symptoms can certainly be lethal. It's not, its major function is to be passed on. Yeah. So it's not killing them of disease. Okay. It's allowing a big pool of them to be out in the wild. That's why it's a reservoir. It's like allowing a big portion of, of these organisms to just be in one place together. Sure. To be able to be passed on. Yeah. There's no rule about if it, can or cannot hurt them. Makes sense. Okay. You'll see. <laughs> so it would benefit Toxoplasma gondii if it could somehow enhance the transmission rate from such a large reservoir mm -hmm. to the cat definitive host, right? Right. Right. Um, and so it does this by getting into the rat brain. Mm-hmm. And forming parasitic cysts and 
changing their behavior. So studies show Toxoplasma gondii specifically causes an increase in rat activity. It causes a decrease in neophobic behavior. So neophobic means fear of novelty, fear of new things. Right. So rats innately are afraid of new things, as are most prey animals. Yeah. Um, it causes a decrease in that fear of new things. It causes an increase in activity. Um, also, it uh, doesn't seem to change other behavior patterns, like other risk behaviors, like the rats going out and competing for mates or whatnot. It doesn't change that kind of behavior. It only seems to change behavior that has an obvious impact on cat predation rates. Right. So, for obvious reasons, rats have evolved an innate aversion to predator odors. That that doesn't seem surprising. Yeah, okay. Right, right, okay. Even lab rats who've never had contact with cats going back several hundred generations... Wow. ...have this strong aversion to cat odors, okay? Okay. Um, But in the year 2000, a new study... Well, a new at the time study... (laughs) ...demonstrated what they called the fatal attraction phenomenon. So it showed that after rats are infected with Toxoplasma gondii, not only do they lose their aversion for cat odors, they actually start to prefer cat-scented areas, which obviously increases their chance of being eaten by a cat. Yes. Yes, Yes. it does. Yes. Um, They showed that they didn't have any change in reaction to their own odor or a neutral smell or a rabbit smell, which suggested that it's not just a damage to their sense of smell. Right. It's specific to the cat odors. Um, And, yeah... I thought that was cool. That's where we started. And then slowly since then, people have been looking at some other wild animals um, and looking at their behavior. So uh, chimpanzees were something else to look at, right? Because what's a better way to figure out what uh, changes toxoplasma might induce in humans than looking at our closest living relative, the chimpanzee. Sure. And seeing what it might do to them because they are still preyed upon by cats in the wild. Right. Well, one cat. Basically, they did find toxoplasma infected chimps lost their innate aversion towards leopard urine. Hmm. Leopards being their only natural predator. Wow. Okay. So in this study, they also exposed the chimps to human urine, tiger urine, and lion urine. And they didn't find any difference in how the chimpanzees responded to any of those urines. Okay. So tigers are from Asia. Lions don't live in tropical rainforests. No. So there's no natural habitat overlap there. So like unlike for the leopards, the chimp behaviors towards cats they don't naturally encounter did not change when infected. But it did with the leopard urine. Wow. Yeah. That's really cool. It is. Uh, hyenas also, which is interesting because you wouldn't, like, hyenas aren't preyed upon by cats. Kind of, mm, though. Kind of. Kind of. But so, lions in this case? Right. So they found that uh, Toxoplasma gondii infection was associated with 
um, bolder behaviors that brought infected hyena cubs into closer proximity to lions. And perhaps not surprisingly, infected cubs had an increased likelihood of being killed by a lion. Right. But that didn't hold up um, for older hyenas. Older hyenas had an increased rate of infection, but not an increased rate of being killed by lions. So the reasoning is maybe that, I mean, yeah, they have more of a chance of getting it every year that they're alive, but that maybe some learning component does override um, whatever is going on in the brain from from toxoplasma. Like they're kind of nurtured into a behavior. Right, yeah. They know to stay away from lines from other ways. Um, Brains are organized a little differently than other, who knows, right? Um, But still interesting. Um, now this study just came out like a week or two ago. Okay. About, uh, about gray wolves with toxoplasmosis. My, other than cubs, I'd be surprised if wolves were preyed upon by what? Mountain lions? Um, Cougars? Cougars is the correct cat, but preyed upon, no. Because in this study, we're finally being like, just because this is, again, we're getting back to intentionality here. The parasite yeah. is not doing what it's doing on purpose. Of course. So whatever effect that it's having in the brains of animals, mm-hmm. it, it doesn't have to be doing that just because it wants to get eaten. It's evolved to do this in animal brains. Yeah. And then we see what effect that's actually having. Across By, all byproduct the effects yeah. basically are happening, right? Okay. So um, gray wolves in the Yellowstone National Park aren't exactly cat prey, is what I was about to say. <laughs> Good. I'm on the right track. Um, yeah, I feel like maybe I just write in anticipation of your questions. Maybe that's just how my brain naturally writes things. No, I, I just wait for you to go to sleep and then I get up and, and read your outlines in secret. You know, and now you know. I might slightly believe you if I hadn't just finished this one a few hours ago. I know you haven't seen it yet. Um, I wouldn't be so sure is what you're trying to say. Yeah. So the thing is that wolf territory overlaps with cougar territory, okay? Okay. Um, cougars are known carriers of Toxoplasma gondii. Makes sense. Cougars and wolves both prey on elk, bison, and mule deer. Mm-hmm. It's possible the wolves became infected by occasionally scavenging dead cougars or ingesting cougar poop yeah. intentionally or not. You know, there's yeah. poop everywhere. It gets on stuff, right? So the researchers that were studying these wolves found that wolves that had a lot of territory overlap with cougars were more likely to be infected with Toxoplasma gondii. This makes sense. Uh-huh. Um, but the behavioral results from this study were unexpected and really cool. So infected wolves were 11 times more likely to disperse from their pack into new territory. Um, But the effect was greater on males, as is something we're going to see going forward with this parasite. So infected males had a 50% probability of leaving their pack within six months, compared with the more typical 21 months for uninfected wolves. Wow. Infected females had a 25% of leaving their pack within 30 months, compared with 48 months for uninfected females. Infected wolves were way more likely to become pack leaders. 
Infection with Toxoplasma gondii makes wolves 46 times more likely to become a pack leader. Wow. Yes. So the proposed mechanism for this is that Toxoplasma gondii may increase testosterone levels, which could lead to heightened aggression and dominance, which obviously are traits that um, an assertive pack leader wolf would be uh, likely to have. Um, and this has a couple of important consequences. So pack leaders are the ones that reproduce. Right. Toxoplasma gondii transmission can be congenital. Yes. So that's one thing. Yeah. Another thing is that this can kind of affect the dynamics of the entire pack because the pack leaders have disproportionate influence on the group's decisions. And the decisions of the other wolves in the pack, even if they're not infected. Right. So they're all going to follow along to the decisions made by the infected wolf, right? Mm-hmm. Right. So if the lead wolf is showing behavioral changes, then all the wolves might show behavioral changes, though they're not infected. Makes sense. Yeah. So, like, if, for example, the pack leader is going to seek out cougar pee in new territory then they could, you know, face more exposure to the parasite because poop and pee, you know, are in the same places. Um, Then there's a greater rate of infection in the wolf population, which is a kind of a feedback loop that increases infection. So again, this is not necessarily intentional by the parasite. And like you said, cats don't necessarily eat them, so it might not really help it get passed on, but um, that's what's happening. This is the result of its behaviors in other animals. Um, And what the researchers kind of end their article by saying is uh, we think that the effects of toxoplasma in the wild are horrendously understudied. Sure. Uh, Its role in ecosystems and animal behavior are are hugely underestimated. And we're only just starting to realize what we've been missing. And we need to study everything ASAP kind of thing. So there's going to be, I think, many, many cool papers coming out in the future that talks more about this stuff. Um, We'll probably find an influence in a lot of animals because this parasite is everywhere. Um, So people, people are next. We'll talk about people now. Let's do that. Um, In humans, there's a lot of debate about what infection with Toxoplasma gondii really does behaviorally speaking. Um, Lots of studies have contradicted each other. We don't have a lot of definitive evidence either way. So I'm going to start with the physical symptoms, and then we'll get to the behavioral stuff. Okay. Um, So physically, uh, well, about a third of humans worldwide are infected or have been infected with toxoplasma. Um, But it depends where you live in the world. Like most parasite data, the prevalence is much higher in lower, low middle income countries and much lower in higher income countries. Makes sense. That's just kind of how it works. Um, So seroprevalence, which is just like, can they detect antibodies in your blood? Um, In the adult populations is like 20 to 40% in the the UK, USA, Canada type of countries. Okay. Um, 50 to 80% in Central Europe, South and Central America and West Africa. Four, four to thirty nine percent in Southeast Asia, China, and Korea. Eleven to twenty eight percent in Scandinavia, and about thirty percent in Australia. So 
you know, lower in a lot of Asian, uh, East Asian places, very high in Central Europe, South and Central America, West Africa kind of areas. Yeah. Again, it's the income disparity. That's the biggest predictor here. Um, it, it, in only very rare cases does toxoplasmosis cause anything severe. Sure. Um, retinocoroditis, myocarditis, and meningioencephalitis are so what it can heart cause. And eyes. Yes. Infl- inflammation of the eyes, heart, spinal cord, and brain, basically. Okay. Are what all those things mean. Um, potential is there to permanently damage any of those systems, as well as, you know, death can result. Um, mostly it's asymptomatic, except for if you're immunosuppressed. So it's kind of a big deal, um, for example, if you have HIV or AIDS. Yeah, okay. Um, it's Toxoplasmosis is the most common central nervous system infection in people that have AIDS and who aren't being properly treated. That's important because um, it, CD4 count, it's a type of immune cell. So when you have HIV and AIDS, or HIV or AIDS, should I say, um, they're monitoring this type of cell and they want your cell count to be above a hundred cells per microliter. Okay. Um, and if you're on appropriate prophylaxis or antiretroviral treatment, then it should be fine. Um, but again, this is one of those income disparity things. Yeah. Okay. Because if you're not being treated properly, it's likely you're in a place with, um, not a robust healthcare system or a lot of money. And then you're more likely to be um, in under that, you know, immune count. Yeah. And, and then it's, and then it actually is a kind of a big deal. Uh, you might end up with cerebral toxoplasmosis, you know, brain lesions, brain swelling, um, headache, confusion, lethargy, seizures, coma, death, you know, all the not good stuff. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's really, it is an issue with immunosuppression. Um, but not for most people, it's not an issue. Behaviorally, there are a few things we know for sure. <laughs> like animals, it does alter uh, olfactory preferences in humans, but you probably wouldn't know it. The only time we've really studied it, it's been A in men, because again, we've been like, hmm, this definitely is more of a thing in men. Men have more behavioral changes. And okay. we'll talk about why that is. I kind of mentioned testosterone earlier. We'll talk about that. Um, in, in a little bit. Um, but for example, they did this study with men and, uh, apparently when men are infected, they rate cat urine, but not tiger urine as a pleasant smell. Really? Yeah. And wow. non-infected men do not, do not think that. No. Okay. Yeah. Um, but most human research has focused on psychiatric illness, impulsivity, and neurocognitive processes like your ability to focus or something, memory. Okay. Um, the most heavily researched area is, is schizophrenia in relation to Toxoplasma gondii infection. So some acute cases of Toxoplasma gondii infection result in hallucinations, hallucinations which is, as you know, a, a key symptom of schizophrenia. And there are reports of, you know, a lot of Toxoplasma gaudii positive individuals with schizophrenia. 
dating all the way back to the 1950s. There was a meta-analysis recently of 38 different studies that suggested toxoplasmic gondii infection increased the odds of developing schizophrenia by 2.7 times. Oh, wow. They've also... Yes. Yes, I'm suspicious, but yes. Toxoplasmic gondii has been linked with major depressive disorder and suicide attempts. Okay. Um... Other studies say poor impulse regulation, including violent and risk-taking behaviors, are a consequence of infection. Um, There is evidence that seroprevalence rates, again, like just if you've had it, the higher rates people have had it, um, co-occur with higher rates of suicide and homicide. Another study said a higher instance in seropositive individuals occurs in prison populations. Really? Um, yes. Another study suggested that toxoplasma gondii seropositivity is related to traffic road accidents, both fatal and non-fatal. Presumably that's the impulse regulation aspect. Um, there's also some evidence that There is neurocognitive, like I said, memory and that type of thing. And personality differences between people that have it and people that don't. Um, In particular, things like slower reaction times and poor attention. Um, So now is when I'm going to point out correlation doesn't mean causation. Yeah. None of these things are proven to a high enough standard that, that we can conclude anything. Right. Let's be clear. Um, there is a more recent study that suggests that most of these links may not exist. Okay. Um, so this study suggests that a positive test for toxoplasma gondii antibodies does not result in increased susceptibility to any neuropsychiatric disorders, poor impulse control, or impaired neurocognitive abilities. They did find, they did kind of back up the finding that attempted suicide was more common in seropositive individuals, um, which is consistent with almost all the previous studies where the history of suicide attempts, but not completion, just attempts, was related to toxoplasma infection. Okay. Um, They did find infected individuals performed more poorly on a test of verbal learning and memory, but not on the other 14 mental tests they gave people. Oh. Um, they did not observe a significant association between toxoplasma positivity and schizophrenia. They admit that there's been over 40 reports now that have been published showing links between those two things. So that leads them to suggest that something is going on. Either that their study is a false negative, um, even though this is one of the most comprehensive studies to date. Or that the previous reports have been exaggerated. This has become more of a... Let's prove it because we think it sort of thing. Yes. Instead of a... And also the general public has, has kind of become interested in this idea. Yeah. Um, and it's almost like it's just become almost like a myth at this point. A legend. Like it's cool almost. Let's talk about it. But there is also a lot of reports linking them. And there is a proposed mechanism. Okay. That we're going to talk about, which is dopamine. So, yeah, we're going to talk about this in a second. Um, so, 
the thing is that people are pretty desperate to find a uh, reason behind things like schizophrenia or bipolar. Of course, um, yeah. Things like this, right? And the researchers of this last study were just wondering if some of that pressure and some of that uh, desperation almost is leading some people to stretch further than they should. And so really, really what we know is that we should do more studies. That's what we know for sure. Um, Some other interesting links that should be studied, but again, are not proven is that there may be a link between Toxoplasma gondii infection and entrepreneurial behavior. Um, so they tested a bunch of students, and the students that tested positive for Toxoplasma gondii exposure were 1.4 times more likely to major in business and 1.7 times more likely to have an emphasis in management and entrepreneurship. They also tested a bunch of participants in entre- entrepreneurship events, and they found Toxoplasma gondii exposure was correlated with being 1.8 times more likely to have started your own business. Interesting. Okay. Um, other preliminary research indicated that Toxoplasma infection could promote changes in a person's political beliefs and values, and that those who are infected with the parasite tend to exhibit a higher degree of us versus them thinking. Again, it's all cool and interesting. Yeah. A lot of it is purely correlation. No replication of data has been demonstrated yet. Speculative. Yeah. Don't yeah. link, like, leap to any conclusions here. It's just, you know, potentially cool. Yeah. Something right. to think about. Um, but thinking about it, we should think about how the, any of this might happen, right? Like, how we can't just blame something with no proposed mechanisms. So, here are some proposed mechanisms. How does toxoplasma manipulate a host's brain? Okay. Okay. So the first element we'll talk about is dopamine, as I was just saying. So dopamine, if you don't know, it's a neurotransmitter and hormone. And it's very important in lots of our body's functions, including movement and memory and reward, like pleasure, motivation. Um, So the toxoplasma genome contains two enzymes that catalyze the key step in dopamine synthesis. So it can actually upregulate your own brain's dopamine production. It can cause your brain to make more dopamine. Um, And then export that dopamine to your surrounding brain tissues. Now, this increased concentration of dopamine could be responsible for the observed association between toxoplasmosis and schizophrenia. And I'll explain how. So we still, of course, don't really know how dopamine relates to schizophrenia exactly. Okay. Um, but it seems like excess dopamine is closely linked to positive symptoms of schizophrenia, and a lack of dopamine is closely linked with negative symptoms. So a positive in this case means like an additional thing is happening to you that doesn't happen to a neurotypical person. A negative thing means a, like a lack of something, lack of focus, lack of okay. joy. So um, positive symptoms of schizophrenia are like hallucina- hallucinations, delusions, unusual speech, atypical body movements, disordered thinking. Um, so it's important to note that dopamine is just one of many factors and we don't really know everything, but it has been seen that excess dopamine in an area of your brain can cause these positive symptoms. Okay. So, yeah, if the parasite's creating lots of dopamine right there, 
That's an interesting theory. Um, a second molecule that might be responsible for some behavioral differences is testosterone. So toxoplasma increases testosterone synthesis. We know this by increasing the number of hormone receptors on Leydig cells. So Leydig cells are the cells in the testes that are the primary source of testosterone in males. So this explains why toxoplasma increases testosterone levels in men, but not in women, because women obviously do not have Correct. testes or these cells. People assigned female at birth do not have those cells. Um, this is why scientists haven't found increased testosterone or behavioral changes in castrated male rats when they have studied them. Okay. Yeah. So... Another thing that Toxoplasma gondii does do, which we've recently learned about, is produces epigenetic changes in the host's body. So unlike genetic changes, epigenetic changes are reversible and they don't change your DNA sequence, but they change how your body reads your DNA. Oh, okay. Okay. So toxoplasma is basically reprogramming the host's brain by changing the regulation and expression of genes in the host. So for example, in rats, we know that toxoplasma is able to reprogram the brain's genetic machinery by way of something called hypomethylation. Hypo meaning... Less, less or little and methyl being a little molecule molecule you can stick on to the yeah, dna a ch3 at the end well at the end it methyl gets stuck onto certain parts of the dna which changes the way it functions makes sense okay so this change means the smell of cat activates and changes the wiring of the medial amygdala circuits oh medial medial amygdala circuits <laughs> So, it, yeah, it's literally changing the brain. Um, this area is responsible for sexual behavior. So the rat is becoming sexually attracted to the smell of cat urine. So that's why it wants to go towards it. Wow. Okay. Scientists have also recently demonstrate that, demonstrated that they, they can restore that fear of cat smell by hyper methylating the dna makes sense they it's the opposite process right yeah so they can again epigenetic changes are reversible um so they can fix that in a rat brain now that we know what is what is happening um toxoplasma gondii has uh well i want to say one other trick up its sleeve but what i mean is one other trick that we know about because clearly there's a whole lot more to find out. Um, but the last thing I'll tell you about is that it can hijack the host's immune cells. So scientists have wondered how toxoplasma is able to, you know, get through the brain and disperse so well and evade the immune system, basically clearing it out. And researchers have found that um, in the infected host, toxoplasma does have the ability to move on its own. Like it has machinery, it can move. But it can also invade immune cells that are mobile. It can invade mobile immune cells. And then they take it through the body. 
Yes, but not just that. Toxoplasma, when it gets inside these cells, it's able to increase the motility of these cells compared to a non-infected cell. Oh. Yeah. It's called parasite-induced hypermobility. And, makes, you know, Yeah. All those words make sense. Yeah. So they've <laughs> proposed that this is a mechanism for the increasing parasite spread. Um, they also found the infection of these motile immune cells helps Toxoplasma gondii to get into and spread through the brain much quicker than free parasites can move on their own. Um, so... I don't know if you'll care about this, but FYI, it predominantly infects um, immune cells called monocytes and CD8 plus T cells. And all that means, the important part of that, is that the parasite is hijacking immune cells that are the most critical for controlling the infection and using them for their own goals instead, literally the opposite of what they're meant to do. Right. Which, again, like... Super cool. And thank goodness um, it doesn't cause more immediate dangerous disease in humans because, uh, darn, I don't know what we'd do. It's pretty, (laughs) it's got a lot of, a lot of mechanisms and a lot of really cool things going on. And I do expect that we must do a ton more research to figure some stuff out. And I'm going to keep looking for cool articles about wild animals, especially and brain stuff. Cause uh, we've got a lot to learn. Clearly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's, that's all I will tell you about that particular parasite today. Yeah. I do think I'm going to do more parasite episodes in the future because they're super cool. Um, and more icky most parasites are more icky than this parasite this isn't even an icky parasite so like get ready for that is what what i'll say good warning i do think our next episode won't be parasites i'm thinking of some kind of history ancient greek and roman history thing that's what i'm in the mood for well there was probably parasites back then too oh there's definitely parasites (laughs) back then um but that being said I do think I will take an extra week off for Christmas. Makes sense. So instead of having our next episode come out on the 27th of December, I think it'll be more like the 3rd of January, just FYI. Um, And I would like to mention one more time, uh, we have an email address for any and all comments and constructive criticisms and again, I am not an expert, so if I got something wrong and you would like to nicely email me, I would love to hear it. Um, yeah, topic suggestions are cool. Saying hi is cool. Uh, the email is teach me something for, that's the numeral for, at gmail.com. Uh, so I would like to say again, thank you for listening to this episode of Teach Me Something. I'm Melissa. And I'm Everett. And I hope you learned something new.